Welcome to The Peg Doesn't Fit, the podcast that brings you the change makers in education. Tune in to hear from educational leaders who aren't content with the status quo educational model and are blazing their own path. Today we have Trevor Aleo and Kayla Duncan on The Peg Doesn't Fit. Welcome to the show, guys. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Well, here's the deal. The way that I met you, I guess we haven't formally met, but our paths crossed (laughs) over a tweet that you had responded to that really got my um, brain moving. And I don't remember the tweet, but what excited me the most is that I, I saw that both of you guys have some experience with visible learning. And I have been um, talking about visible learning and and how these effect sizes throughout the show. So before we really get into any content, I just want to throw it out there since I finally am meeting some certified visible learning people. What is your favorite Hattie effect size out of all 200 and what are the 252 or is it up to 253 now? Oh, Maybe 253. I'm going to go with 252 because that feels safer. <laughs> let's, let's go with 252. So what's your favorite uh, influence that he names that affects education in a positive light or negative, I suppose? <laughs> um, I'll be super, I don't know if it's super creative, but the conceptual change programs and I'm going to cheat and say transfer strategies also. <laughs> um, How convenient. I know as I'm, I'm taking the easy route, but both of those, I mean, we honestly hit a lot on those in the book as we'll talk about, but activating students prior knowledge and helping them connect to and understand new concepts, I feel is so powerful and could be used universally in all content areas. And then this idea of transfer is just helping students see how their new learning plus their prior learning connects together to this other new situation or can be implied in other situations. Um, Both of those just speak to the power of where we can move in education and they're really exciting to me. So for me, I'd have to say teacher credibility because Mm -hmm. I think that that word credibility really captures just the really multi-dimensional way that teachers are asked to and are at their best when they show up in the classroom not just as somebody who has credibility with students in terms of the relationships they form with them, but also their relationship with the content, um, with their ability to show uh, an excitement and a passion and a certain level of, of comfort with the discipline that they're instructing the students in. Because I, personally, I don't, I don't like seeing it as like a binary, I teach content or I teach kids. Uh, for me, uh, my relationship with the discipline is, is like an avenue or a sluice way to get kids to see how English language arts can help them make sense of themselves and make sense of their world. So uh, the idea of teacher credibility, not only focusing on how we can form relationships with our students and mentor them as humans and and people and learners, but also as um, sort of uh, apprentices in the discipline that we are in. So they feel invested in it and not just like engaged by it. Wow. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. What's yours? I'm big on collective efficacy right now, uh, mm-hmm. just because I feel, I mean, I can't, it feels like it's also cheating because I'm picking pretty well at the top, but. Uh, Not pretty well, all the way. And Well, <laughs> I have felt like it depends on what I look at. Some will put it at the top and say it, some say it's like second from the top. So um, 
either way, I just like the idea of working together. Um, I think like our last guest, Chad Dumas, talking about PLCs and stuff, just the, the power of everybody working together is uh, pretty imp- uh, impactful, I guess, is really the best yeah. one. And How about and you, the, Eric? Well, the other one we've talked about a lot on the show is the teacher clarity. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping to get really into that today with some of our questions, but just in terms of telling the kids exactly what they're right. going to learn and then teaching them exactly what you told them and then assessing them to see if they learned it. Sure. It sounds also common sense, but it's just, you know. Sometimes it's easier said than done. It's one of those things where they say it's actually very simple to do, but very hard to do, I think, Absolutely. Um, because it requires that discipline factor. All right. Well, how do you all get connected? There are four of you as authors. We have two of you on here. You must be the primary best ones, right? Uh, but <laughs> how do you all connect? Because you do not live anywhere similarly to each other. And, and what inspired you to write Learning That Matters? I mean, well, transfers. Before they connect, let's make sure that we make it real clear. Congratulations on your new book. That is exciting. What was the release date? uh the 23rd march 23rd right was the oh, official very fresh. Release date? yes yeah it's, yeah it's new. Of, of course with the whole like suez situation when it's actually arriving in people's hands i don't know if that's actually the reason but there have been some <laughs> it was Am- trapped on amazonian the delays recently yeah <laughs> yeah so it's slowly releasing well the book title is learning the transfers transfers designing curriculum for a changing world so, so we can release we- this on video there we go folks Oh, right. yeah, it is. isn't it pretty? It, it is, is very pretty. But yeah, I like, I like the uh, just, I don't know. Let's assume that people actually are looking at this online at some point. I like the layout, just the graphics you put in here, breaking up the text. Was that something you chose to do? Was it suggested or how that come we, about? We were really intentional. Um, Trevor is like our design guru, but he and I would go back and look at it and think, how could we try to visually represent as many ideas as possible um, to not have it just so text heavy? And we really like how it came out as almost like a workbook feel, like a journal where you can document your thinking and it's not just research and ideas. You actually have a chance to plan while you're going through each chapter. You know, one of the guests on, on our podcast, um, conceptually speaking, was uh, Oliver Caviglioli, and he talks a lot about dual coding and uh, visuospatial reasoning. And it was really important to us that we take a lot of these really com- uh, abstract, complex ideas and think about how we could use visuals as a way to represent them and just make them more tangible because, you know, it does get pretty up in the ether sometimes when we're talking about like, you know, the relationship between com- concepts it doesn't get much more abstract than that. So visuals just provide a good way to, to really break that down and make it clear, which is why it was really important for us to and you're book. literally doing exactly what your book is about, which is like using visual concepts to make things transfer. So I really <laughs> like that. So back to my question before Mr. Eric Steven wanted to bring it back to congratulations. <laughs> How do you guys get connected uh, as some people that do not live geographically anywhere similar to each other? Julie is the the core. She is the glue okay. to our team. And um, 
Krista, who is listed next to Julie um, in the byline, she had, and Julie have co-authored Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding together, and they worked together at a charter school system in the D.C. area. Um, so they at one time were geographically close to okay. each other, and so they've known each other for quite a while. And then I had the great opportunity to go to D.C. and see a conference with one of, or one of Julie's workshops probably about four years ago. And from that, she then came back and we had her working with some of my schools in my district. And then just from emailing back and forth and sharing ideas, she then asked if I would like to be part of uh, this team in this larger project, which is great. And then that moves me to then Trevor's coming in. Trevor, I'll let you tell your how you came into the story. <laughs> yeah, so um, I met Julie through the magical world of Edu Twitter, and I just didn't really know any better but to send her a message one day and be like, your book is amazing. Look at the stuff I'm doing with it in my class. I really appreciate you writing it. And I'd love to, you know, connect or something at some point. And, um, you know, we, I just was really excited to be on Edu Twitter. I was like, you know, had been on it for a few months. And she actually followed back up and invited me to attend a conference that she was doing. So I, I drove on a really rainy uh, Sunday to Baltimore and, and took in an amazing conference that she put on. And from there, we just continued collaborating. Um, and like the first thing that we actually did together was go to uh, Forsyth County, Georgia, where Kayla is an instructional coach and put on a, a little a workshop down there. So it was, uh, I guess, through there, uh, Kayla and I, as Julie says, bring, bring a lot of enthusiasm. We have like a, like a thing one, thing two, dynamic duo kind of uh, energy that we bring to your proceedings. And uh, you know, she asked us to co-author the book and uh, it was it was right before COVID really kicked off. I guess we we agreed to it, and then from there we wrote it all. You know, like we're talking to you now via Zoom, which is, which is pretty wild. That's my next about. question. Yeah. That's cool. So you had yeah. a collaborative document essentially, and you just mm -hmm. yeah, we, at it. yeah, it was great. We had this wonderful process, and I know we've we've chatted about it, but the idea of having four authors never was an issue. We each had our strengths that we brought and we just got into this rhythm of how it would cycle through all of our hands. And I think that's one of the beautiful pieces of it is that we all were part of everything. It wasn't divide and conquer and then try to glue it together. It was, we really helped kind of weave this whole piece. And then Krista magically made it seem like one voice. <laughs> so it's, um, but it's just, it was really nice to kind of all work together, even though it was through zoom, it didn't seem that complex or tricky stepping on each other's toes or anything. Yeah. I mean, we, we certainly had a lot of time on our hands, you know, considering everyone was quarantined and, you know, no one was going to concerts or baseball games, um, yeah. you know, over the summer or anything. Uh, but it, to Kayla's point, it really was beautiful to be working on this document together and everyone brought their own unique perspective and insight to the table, but everyone was also comfortable getting feedback and, you know, considering different perspectives and frames on how we discuss the, the material. So it was worked really well where everyone brought something unique to the table, but also acknowledged the strengths that the other co-authors had. And that I think led us to make a, a balanced book because our audience is just like, educators like from the top down and I, I think that's kind of a unique way to construct a book it does you know like lead to some challenges considering how broad of uh, the audience we're writing to but I think at, at the end hopefully it'll create a sense of cohesion you know whether you're a classroom teacher or a, a curricular specialist for their district what an amazing story and and kind of to that point we'll get into your book because uh, what I notice is, I mean, it's a lot of big picture. So, so you can tell that you're writing to a, a wide audience because you talk a lot of big picture ideas. Um, 
what do you believe? So I'm, I'm going to give you like the biggest picture question ever. <laughs> what is the purpose of education and where are we failing? Man. Well, our purpose in writing and what we believe the purpose of education is we don't know what the future looks like for our students and with how this past year has been, it's just even more obvious that sometimes things can happen at the drop of the hat that no one's prepared for. And so education is to prepare our students to be prepared for anything to where they can face adversity, complexity, all these different um, pieces in their life and feel like they have a way to move forward. Not that they necessarily know the exact answer, but they're able to think and reason through and creatively process to where they can try to help come up with solutions um, for these complex problems. Failing, it, it sounds so harsh. I don't know if I like saying failing, but I think that- um... <laughs> That's how I felt when I said it. I said, <laughs> you know what, it feels harsh. You know, our show is to peg doesn't fit. So clearly we talk about things that, I don't know if mm -hmm. failing is the word, yeah. but there's perhaps a better way. I mean, everybody thinks for sure, for sure. there needs to be some changes. It's just sure. making those changes happen. So, so not where are we failing, but where could we make a shift? Um, moving away from the right answer, I think. I know that we're coming into testing season since a lot of folks do still have to take a test. And the idea that students are working towards this like payoff of earn these credits or these scores to then get to school. Like I think K-12, it's a lot of times our students are seeing as a means to an end and we're not helping them enjoy the journey along the way. And so I think that we can really improve on one, helping them see the utility and the beauty of what they're learning, but then also just to enjoy their time while they're there, make it an enjoyable experience where they want to be part of the learning process versus just accumulating credits to move on to some other like piece of life. Yeah, Kaylee really captured a lot of, of what I was gonna say and, and I'm thinking, but I don't wanna do the annoying English teacher thing, but I, I'm going to and, and ask uh, answer your question with another question, which is when did we stop asking the question, what is the purpose of education? Um, because I do feel like I've had a lot of conversations with teachers and, and even in the courses that we're running right now for uh, the different disciplines where they're like, wow, it has been such a long time since I've had either the opportunity or the um, uh, ability to just kind of stop and ask myself, why am I teaching English language arts? What is the purpose of this learning that we're engaging in together? Um, and I, I think it's a really important question. And I answering that is, is definitely way above my pay grade. But I, I, what I will say is that I know that the answer isn't to quantify students' learning into an individual number that we can then use to say what their potential is as a human being. So I, I think that the purpose of education is to maximize the potential of every human being that enters into our classroom. And that's no easy task, uh, but I do think that spending time reflecting on why we are doing what we are doing is really important because it is very easy to get lost in the you know the day-to-day -day grind of making sure your learning management system is updated, making sure the grades are being put in, making sure that your your you know your units are aligned and that you're collaborating with your PLCs. All those things are really important parts of what it means to be an educator, I think, in the in a modern classroom. But that needs to be in service of something beyond just accomplishing the task, beyond just getting through. And I think that when I 
try to grapple those big questions of like, what's the purpose? I do really think about how can I maximize my students' potential? Um, how can I help them make sense of themselves in their world? Uh, how can I help them transfer their understanding to solve the complex problems that we can't even conceptualize yet? Thank you for those answers. Those are great. Appreciate it. I was trying to type it all in so I can remember. <laughs> too. Um, well, you have this concept, ACT, acquire, connect, and transfer. Can you talk for a minute about the acquire phase, um, especially on teaching students? Uh, how do we teach them to store the information they acquire? And either one of you can take this. <laughs> so I think the interesting thing with the acquire phase is it's something that in my own experience and, and when we talk to other teachers, some that all teachers do, but it's about being really intentional about how you do it and how you frame learning that we think is kind of like the, the special magical sauce. Julie has an anecdote that she shares that I really like where she had a teacher who had students, you know, run through this really uh, elaborate project and take this really in-depth test um, about uh, all of these different instances and events dealing with immigration. Um, and at the end of the unit, one of the students was like, you know, we learned a lot about these you know, instances of immigration, but I really don't even know what that concept means. So an, an example of what it means to acquire a concept is to really get a strong consolidated understanding of what it is. And a lot of times we teach a bunch of topics and we, we help students maybe memorize a bunch of facts and we assume that they cobble those together to understand a concept. Um, when in reality, we need to help students identify what are the characteristics of, of you know, in social studies of power, of sovereignty, in English language arts of claims, in science of ecosystems. So instead of just cycling them through a bunch of topics and having them memorize the facts, helping them understand what is the, the file folder that you put all those topics and facts into that has transfer and leverage in, in different contexts. So for me, that acquire phase is about be, being really intentional about the terms that we use to organize and categorize student learning so when they go on to that class next year, they're like, oh yeah. And in English language arts, this happens all the time. We're like, I didn't learn how to write a claim last year. And it's like, well, that's because the teacher called it an assertion or something, or you just right. wrote them without thinking about it. So being really intentional about the terms that we use to organize and categorize learning um, for the acquire phase, I think is really important. And to, to build on that with helping students really like store that in their heads, we help them tune into those critical attributes. What is it that makes that concept that concept? Um, and we do that a lot with looking at examples and non-examples and different concept attainment strategies. So that way they're not just looking at the word and a definition and then maybe drawing a picture. Um, it's, we really help them start to make sense of the concept on their own and start to find those critical attributes. And then we follow that up with confirming or um, filling in any misconceptions they might've had. And by doing that, they're better able to make sense. And as Trevor said, create that file folder, which they can then put everything away. Well, it's really brilliant. And I like the way that you, you talk about the characteristics, because, you know, when I was reading that, it was making me think of remote learning, right? Mm -hmm. So I am by no means a technology expert, you know, and all these apps that were flowing in and everybody's trying to learn, mm -hmm. you know. Everybody's looking at them as like separate things and it's just one more thing and it's one more thing and it's one more thing. But I know enough about technology 
that I'm able to see the similarities in the programs and what type of program works for this and what kind of program does the same thing. It's really just a choice or, or just navigating through the program and just hitting right click somewhere or clicking file and looking for settings. I mean, just, just the simplicity of how it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And I kind of worked my way through it and I was able to train a lot of teachers how to do things and learn a bunch of things because I had a conceptual understanding of, of how computer applications work. Mm-hmm. And being able to transfer that ability to students into something else is it just it just made so much sense to me and it just clicked. Um, let's move to the connect though. I'll let I'll let you address this one, Kayla, because Ryan has talked multiple times on the show about the need to be more cross curricular. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about disciplinary literacy and how that can lead to students taking knowledgeable action. And I guess I've broken this down into two concepts because on a simple level, you know, if you teach language arts, what can a teacher do within their own content to, to develop those categories for kids so they understand the concepts? And then on a bigger level, you know, what are some strategies or recommendations you have for teachers to connect with other teachers in other content areas to help start to make some of this stuff transfer from class to class? Sure, absolutely. So as you mentioned, we like to go big picture to um, a little bit smaller and that's what we did in the book. And so with disciplinary literacy, we first wanna think about, as Trevor mentioned, what's the purpose of my discipline? If kids are using my discipline and my content, how is that being um, used in the real world? What do the masters do with my discipline? And so thinking about that, it helps then teachers come up with these ideas of disciplinary lenses And it's concepts, these really broad concepts that we can view every situation through in our our content area, in our course. And with that, those concepts are going to connect, those lenses will connect in every unit that we have. And then as we get to like a finer picture, we then look at the units, what's the anchoring concept or what's most important for this unit. And so then we're thinking as we plan, what are the connections we want students to see between those? And so it's this constant moving and spiraling of going between anchoring concepts and these disciplinary lenses that allow students to see kind of the, the core of our discipline, how our discipline is structured and connected. And so with our own discipline, it's really looking at, you can start from your learning outcomes or your standards or whatever it is that you have in your curriculum. And then also look at the real world implications for your discipline and think what is most important and use that to start creating those concepts and weaving those connections through from unit to unit. For other content areas, we have some horizontal planning templates where you can look for elementary and middle school, this might be easier, where you can look with your content teams or within your grade level for those connections. Where do your standards overlap? Like in seventh grade, you have probability standards that usually line up with the seventh grade life science genetic standards. So there's an easy cross-curricular connection there. Um, humanities, social studies, and ELA, you can usually find a lot of ways to overlap. So it's looking for those natural connections. But even if you can't always plan that way, and like high school, for example, students aren't always in the exact same courses on teams, you can still look at how does your content connect to other disciplines. You can collaborate and just get ideas and then weave that into your own course. And then moving into from disciplinary literacy, there are also some modern literacy components, which I know like we might talk about in just a bit, they can also weave and create those um, cross-disciplinary connections. So it's really being intentional 
And if it's only you, if you can only do it, then you're looking at current events or you're just looking at other standards or outcomes and seeing how you might connect that. But if you have a great team or others that you can speak with in your school, then it's taking ideas and saying, hey, where might we connect on this? Where might we overlap? What could we do together? Yeah. I like, <clears throat> and it's not like this is new, <laughs> building <laughs> on prior knowledge. You know, I was a terrible student growing up. I never did what the teacher said, but, but I do, I'm thinking back. I remember one time, probably there's probably more than one time, you know, the teacher say, Hey, read this chapter before tomorrow. So, you know, we're going to talk about it. And one time out of the blue, like I did, I read it. Right. And then during class, like all we did was talk about what I'd already read. So I really had a lot to participate because I built my own prior knowledge by reading the assignment before I came to class knowing that kids are more like me than not um, finding those prior connections because it's amazing how much more participate uh, how much more I participated in that discussion because I had something to bring to it mm-hmm. and any opportunity that we could find to let kids connect with what they already know will just enhance that lesson all the more but for whatever reason it's just not natural to do that absolutely and, and that's one of the affordances of concepts, where when you think about topics, a lot of times students will be like, the stuff that I learned in school is in this sort of like schemata neighborhood over here. And then the stuff that I learn about and care about at home is over here. And, and concepts sort of create this like, you know, synaptic superhighway between these two seemingly disparate places where they begin to realize, oh, wait, you know, we're talking about this concept of freedom in my history class. And, you know, I, you know, I've been grounded before. I know what it's like to have my freedom taken away. And obviously that's an incredibly pithy example, but it gives them an entry point into having conversations about a lot more complex situations, because instead of, you know, treating a student like they are this blank canvas upon which we paint some facts and, and information, we're tapping into things that they know and care about. Um, and one of my favorite points uh, of every year is when my students are like, Mr. Elio, I can't escape your class because everywhere I look, I see these concepts that we talk about and it's, it's cool, but it's also really annoying um, because it makes their learning um, inescapable. So it, it's a really cool way to help the students not only see how concepts live everywhere, but the disciplines that we teach live everywhere as well. There's, I think a lot of times people, I love that your kids feel that way because there's a, you know, there's the phrase of falling down the rabbit hole with, you know, any given concept that you have. And it sounds like your, your students are doing that. I know in the lean manufacturing world, they call it learning to see, like once you see inefficiency and waste, you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. My room actually kind of drives me nuts now because sometimes I, I see my own inefficiencies and it drives me crazy. So it's so cool that your kids are doing that. Cause I think that's what every teacher wants is kind of fall down that rabbit hole. So you can't escape how things connect everywhere. Uh, that's beautiful. Um, I'm skipping ahead a question. I'm going to steal Eric's, uh, cause I think it ties in better. So, uh, modern literacy, since we've been talking about the, uh, disciplinary literacy, talk about what, how does modern literacy, um, compare contrast with what you've been talking about with disciplinary literacy? So we're really intentional with the choice of the word literacy um, because literacy are skills plus social practice. So the idea that when people use skills, they're to accomplish certain goals and they interact with other people who are also using those skills. And what sort of emerges is a social practice where people are working together and using similar concepts, using similar skills. And um, when we talked about, we talked about disciplinary literacy, we're talking about the ways of knowing, thinking, 
um, doing, discussing, questioning that certain disciplines have. Historians interact with situations in a different way than a scientist does, in a different way that a literary scholar would. Um, so when you bring in, when you bring in um, modern literacies, it's this realization that there are a lot of other disciplines and domains and practices and skills that exist that don't fit neatly into the subjects that we have at school. So design thinking could be an example. So how do people who are participate in design thinking, um, um, so I guess people who are participants in like design thinking spaces, how do they interact? How do they act? What skills do they have? What knowledge are they bringing to the table? Um, somebody who is a systems thinker, uh, what, what are they doing? Um, when we're thinking about social and emotional learning, if you know, uh, how does someone who knows how to regulate their uh, emotions and to you know, create and set plans and follow through on things, uh, how, what sort of skills are emerging and developing there? So modern literacy is this really big umbrella term that we created um, that basically all the stuff that's not in your disciplinary curriculum. Um, and a lot of teachers, I feel like suffer from like initiative fatigue, where like you were saying earlier, Eric, it's just thing after thing after thing feels like is being dumped on them. So if we think about instead of like this separate initiative being piled on top of us, but we think about what are the concepts in, for instance, like the ISTE standards or in Castle social emotional learning, what are the concepts there and how can we bring them into our class and maybe even start mixing them in with some of the disciplinary concepts that we talk about too. I like that because though it does not fully overlap with when people throw out 21st century learning, I think it has some of those common concepts. And I, I feel like I get a mental hiccup or a barrier when I hear 21st century learning, because I think, you know, we're already 20 years in, yeah. uh, we've burnt up a fifth of our 21st century and we're still not doing that. So <laughs> instead, I, I feel like you lowered my cortisol when I hear modern literacy because that feels like it's more universal and it does feel interconnected and i like that good term well <clears throat> my goodness we've talked about the acquire we've talked about the connect and this one might be right up your alley kaylee because it, it follows along your favorite influence but let's talk about the transfer phase. So when I was reading about that, I was thinking about a previous guest, David Franjos. Again, we've we mentioned him in like almost every show because we love. He's him our so. favorite name drop currently. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that he's been focusing on this year is really teaching skills over concepts. And this may be way out of line, but can you expand on on the idea of how it applies to your work? So, for instance, you know, he might be teaching a set of skills, but with each unit those skills transfer across, you know, even though it might be a little bit different content, he's still using the same skills to complete the content. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure, maybe I'm wrong. It's a bad example. You can change me now and you can just go ahead and talk about what you guys mean by transfer, but let's dig into that phase of the ACT real quick. Absolutely. So math is my background. So I, I love concepts and skills. Like that's just part of the nature of it. Um, and so we believe both concepts and skills transfer and can transfer. Um, in math, it's you really want students to understand what's happening when they're using those skills um, or maybe even the procedures. And so they actually understand what they're doing or how their thinking moves or um, when they're using a skill, how do they know they're using it effectively? And that's what will really help them transfer. And so it's that metacognitive piece in both of those being able to think about what do I understand or know about this concept? What do I know about this skill that will effectively enable them to transfer to that new situation? 
Um, I think that if we treat a concept like a vocabulary term or a skill as like a rote pattern or something to remember, it doesn't transfer. It's that understanding of where are the components of that skill or those attributes of that concept. And then my ability to be aware of when that skill or that concept is applicable in a new situation. That's really what we're going with with transfer is thinking about we're connecting to student prior knowledge we're layering in and adding in new concepts and creating these conceptual connections to have these relationships. And then whenever students encounter a new understanding, we want them to take that conceptual understanding, those relationships and see where does it apply or where does it not apply? Because not everything will transfer or transfer appropriately. And so for us, transfer is just taking what you've learned and applying it to a new or novel situation. Yeah, it really is about the application of that concept. And like, for instance, if you're going to teach the skill of communication, another thing that we really um, sort of stress, and we have uh, a thinking routine tied to it called uh, Think and Refine. Am I messing it up, Kayla? I know it's something in Un refine. Unlock and Refine. Thank you. Thank you. Unlock and Refine. Because when we go to new contexts, the way that concepts and skills show up there is quite different. So like, um, uh, I coach soccer at my previous school. And if I want to teach communication on a soccer field, it might be okay if players yell and bark at each other a little bit, if they're trying to like reorganize their line. But, you know, if I have a student who is, you know, in the middle of a science experiment and they're like, you know, cutting open a pig, it's not okay for a student to scream at another student about how they're using the scalpel. So like that communication, like that context changes the way that that skill um, looks and the way that we talk and think about the concept. So that like metacognitive piece and tending to the unique I guess, attributes of different contexts and different situations really comes into play too. All right, I'm trying to type while I, cause all of your great ideas are flowing. Ryan's always typing, it slows him down on his question. I know. <laughs> well, I never want to forget this stuff cause my memory is not the best. It's recorded, Ryan, we can listen to it. <laughs> you should run longer. it through otter.ai and just get the full transcript from it. Oh, really? Otter.ai. We just learned yeah, something new. There's a plug. <laughs> Otter.ai. Typing it as well right yep. now. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So backwards by design is a planning strategy that's been around for a while, of course, or whatever they want to call that. Thinking with the end in mind, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Common teacher term. Uh, sometimes it doesn't always take hold as an everyday practice in teacher planning. So um, tell us your spin on this idea and what can you say about it that will help make it click and get educators to buy into planning with their lessons, you know, planning with that end in mind and going backwards. Yep. All right, I'll start. <laughs> um, so really something that became uh, obvious and Julie does a great job of explaining this whenever we're working with schools is an aha moment in the book is that we're not planning backward from any sort of objective or standard. We're planning backwards from students' ability to transfer and not context dependent, but just their ability to transfer. That's what we're trying to instill um, and empower our students to do. And so with the backwards planning, having that in mind, you can then think of a variety of contexts. You can plug in your standards, your objectives if you want to. Um, but what I've noticed for the reason why it doesn't normally click is because it's usually associated with a planning template that really looks like it's overwhelming. There's a bunch of boxes to fill mm -hmm. out. 
and people get bogged down with the paperwork where what we really want to think about is delete the boxes you don't want, but just think about, okay, how do we want students to be able to transfer? How am I going to enable them to do that throughout the unit? And then you take your content and you think about what's most important about this unit. What are these priority skills and concepts? How can I link them in conceptual relationships? So that way I know I'm going to help students connect these ideas. And then how can I intentionally find meaningful context that I can use to help monitor student thinking? Because that's something, um, I know there's another question about assessment, but that's something with our planning is that we feel like assessment is just the system of feedback. It shouldn't be standalone events. And so with this backwards design process, what concepts are the most important? What questions can I ask my students to help them see the connections throughout the unit? And then thinking simple to complex, and then you plan a final summative that could have students transferring to a new situation where you can assess their understanding. Um, but taking away the paperwork feel of it and just seeing it as this process of what's most important, how can they connect it, and how can I intentionally structure my lessons and experiences for students to see those connections and their thinking evolve. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about taking away the box. I guess I talk about this all the time and I don't necessarily talk about it with a template in mind because what you just said makes the most sense of, of anything I've ever heard. Um, and I say it all the time also. I mean, what's the most important thing you want them to learn? Everything else is gravy. Mm -hmm. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I mean, they're going to pick up other stuff, mm -hmm. but you can't assess them on all of them, but the most important thing, what do you want them to master? That's where we put our focus. I go in classrooms all the time, and this will kind of lead into our next question, because I go in classrooms all the time. Kids are really good at telling you what they're doing. They know what activities they're doing, you know, but do they know what they're learning? And it sounds like you guys, your, your sisters, not only do they know what they're learning, but they, they know how it connects to something else that they've already learned. So it's easy for them to answer what they're learning because they already understand the big picture. You know, so it's almost like you're planning, really, you're going to backwards by design the whole unit. You know, what skills throughout the course of the year do I want these kids to be able to make connections with? And then once you figure out what are the overarching skills, then you're going to keep going backwards and you're going to break it down into different units and focus on those certain skills. But you have a plan this whole year to connect certain things together. And that I, I don't understand why everybody wouldn't want to do that. But, but we get these textbooks and we think, OK, chapter one, and we just want to teach it all. Yeah, I think that sometimes we sort of like outsource our ability to make sense of the content and our discipline to those documents instead of like getting in, you know, the mud and the dirt and having some real conversations about what does it look like for a student to be able to successfully showcase knowledge or, or complete a skill or transfer their learning. Um, and it, it can be really powerful to have those conversations because they really focus on what that um, sort of end result will be as opposed to maybe some of the activities or the sessions or the lessons that get run through along the way. Because um, I think that sometimes it is maybe lost to get or easy to get lost in that planning process without necessarily focusing on um, what that what the learning looks like or what the end result will be. And I, I like uh, Caleb mentioning that that end result is students ability to transfer. Um, because th there have been times in my practice where if I plan backwards from like students ability to understand one text like Romeo and Juliet, 
And even if I have a really well backwards designed unit, like unless they're on Jeopardy, they're probably not going to need to, you know, know about uh, Mercutio talking about the Fairy Queen. Um, but if we're instead using that text and backwards planning from students' ability to understand like the relationship between fate, love, hope, and revenge, that is something that can play into their life. That is something that can play into future texts that they encounter. Um, you know, if we're thinking about like how dramatic elements impact presentation, that's something that they can apply when they're watching films or when they're um, looking at um, future plays. So really thinking about backwards planning from that uh I guess, transfer tasks that allows them to bring that knowledge to future situations. Yeah. Right. Kayla, as an instructional coach, I don't know if this applies or not, but I'm just thinking about oftentimes it feels like there's this, I don't know if it's even explicit, but there's an implicit uh, pressure to here's your book. So because your district bought it for you, by God, you better use it to because that was a resource purchased for you so honor the gift by teaching the book <laughs> and i know i have felt that and and that's tough to break away from sometimes is that something that you feel like you're the teachers you work with are ever feeling that pressure like that's why i that's my hiccup to planning with a concept in mind versus using my book um I think it does. I think it depends. I'm in a unique situation where the district that I work for is like my main job. Um, they fortunately don't do that. They're great where we have a primary resource. that's a support, yeah. but it's a resource. Um, but with other schools that we've worked with, and I know Trevor can speak about um, different curriculums that he's worked with maybe, but the the idea that you're stuck in this curriculum, that's where we even had those teachers in mind as we wrote the book that you can still look, if you're given this prescribed unit and told you need to do this unit this way, you can still go through the ACT model. You can still look at it and say, what's most important from this chapter that I'm supposed to teach on these days? And then what questions can I create to help students answer that? Mm -hmm. And so it's really framing the context and framing the book chapters. And so instead of moving through worked examples in the book, maybe you can adjust a couple of them and let students investigate and explore them before you want to show them all these different prescribed problems that they might need to like read or solve. And so really that intentionality and just simple reframing of the content. It's not that it's super easy. I, it does it does stink to be locked into one book or one prescribed curriculum, but it's not not doable. Um, it's just a matter of intentionality. And then once you pose your questions, look at the book, pull out the best examples or the best context to really help students see those relationships. Um, I think that's a big piece that, especially in math, where if we want students to make connections, our intentionality in the task or the context that we give students is integral to them actually seeing those connections because it can't be a watered down example. Otherwise, it'll misconstrue or just confuse students. So it is doable. But I know, Trevor, you um, have had multiple experiences in different places with different curriculums. So I know you can speak to that a bit from the teacher perspective. Yeah, it really is about a reorganization and a reorientation of what's there. So when I first uh, encountered Julie's book, Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding, that's sort of like the bedrock upon which learning that transfers is built. Um, I started bringing some of those ideas in and I taught the exact same text that I taught the year before. 
but the way that I frame them, the way that I discuss them, the way that I uh, we looked at and and you know co-created uh, our uh, objectives for the unit, that is what changed. It's by focusing on those concepts. So I still taught Romeo and Juliet, but instead of at the end focusing on you know do my students know these details, I was instead focusing on their ability to understand those broader concepts that they could then transfer to future. Um, text and context. So um, this year I am uh, moved to Wilton, Connecticut. And I'm a writing workshop teacher. So, you know, I, I went from being a high school English teacher to only focusing on writing. Um, we use Lucy Calkins units of study. Um, but because it's about reorienting and reorganizing, I'm still following the curriculum that we have, but the way that I frame and phrase things is what's changed. So we think that that's one of the affordances of the book is that you know we've, we've read a lot of great education books, but teachers aren't able to enact the ideas in them because they require more like broader systemic changes or like they would require more resources. But um, one of the things that we're hoping teachers can climb onto is the fact that all it takes is just shifting the way that you think about the content that you're already being asked to teach and framing it in a way that transfers. Like it. So, I'm going to, I know the last question kind of turned you guys into a salesman and I think you did a good job selling. I'm going to ask you to sell, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to sell one more thing. Perfect. <laughs> so it's back to what I was saying before, how, you know, I go in a classroom, the kids know what they're doing, but they don't necessarily know what they're learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I couldn't help but notice that every single one of your chapter begins with a learning objective. Mm -hmm. uh, and you tell us up front, this is what you're going to learn in this chapter. And sure enough, you stick to it. And that's what we learn. I also, at the same time, I see lots of Twitter sphere people making comments about why does the administrator always think that I need to have my learning objective posted just so it can look pretty for an evaluation. And it seems like they're missing like the reason, like they think the only reason that administrators want teachers to post learning objectives is so they have a box to check when they do an evaluation. But in truth, I see a learning objective kind of being a multi-faceted thing. One, it tells the kids what they're going to be learning. But secondly, it's like always up on the board to remind the teacher to help keep them focused. You know what I'm saying? So if they see somebody kind of going off, they can always point back to the board and say, no, 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 look, this is what we're doing today. So what's your message to teachers to finally convince them why this practice is valuable and not just busy work that looks good on evaluation? Okay. Um, Sorry, I, think, I guess I should okay. be directing them to people. Remember, <laughs> I, I thought we were in a flow where you were going, Kayla, and I was following. Right, right, so I just right. was yeah, like yeah. sticking with that so we didn't That works. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to just like jump in and speak. Um, so the big thing is I think that if they feel like it's just a waste of time, they haven't seen the power that it can have with their students and how it can empower their students. I think that's the biggest thing with posting intentions. And we even say at one point in the book, you can post an intention and we have some sample like stems for the acquire, connect and transfer phase or posting your conceptual question and saying, hey, in our lesson today or by the end of this week, we're going to be able to answer this question. We're trying to really find the connections between these two things. And we also like to pair it with success criteria. But the whole point is that it gets students aware of what it is we want them to know and do. And then they can monitor their learning as they're going through the lesson or set of lessons. And so it really is an empowering piece and a reflective piece 
for students. So that way we're not hiding the ball from them. It's, we are explicit of we're trying to learn this. And we think by the end of it, you should be able to explain it in your own words or connect and answer this conceptual relationship question, whatever it might be. And then students can self-assess. So as they're going through, they can look up there and say, okay, I should be learning this. I should be able to demonstrate this X, Y, or Z success criteria. Can I do that? And so it's not just a, to put up, I mean, it is great to be a reminder for the teacher to be like, oh yeah, this is like some of the points I wanted to make. But really the power is for students and for them to know what they're doing and where they're going. So that way they're better able to self-assess, advocate for themselves and be part of that learning conversation versus the teacher always having, here's what you're learning, here's what you understood. Students can then be in the driver's seat to say, here's what I know, here's what I don't know. Yeah, I like that idea of how it empowers the students, Galex. I think that's definitely one of the biggest bonuses of doing that is it prevents students from playing uh, all of their least favorite game, which is guess what's in the teacher's head. Um, and if the teacher is having to constantly remind students, here's why we're, here's what we're doing, you know, here, here's what your objective is. It's much more efficient just to have that. So then students can begin to engage some metacognition and ask themselves, well, how well do I understand this concept? Can I, you know, bring it to this new context? And one of the things that we uh, have in the book in the assessment chapter um, is basically what we see as success criteria for each phase of acquire, connect, and transfer. So um, having students not only be aware of what the content is or the concepts that they're learning that week, but also be reflective about, you know, how well do I understand the way that these look throughout each phase of the ACT model. So um, by either displaying the questions or displaying um, the success criteria for students, it really makes it clear and concrete what they're um, learning is, which then allows them to take more ownership of it. And even beyond, and we love the real world connection and we seek to constantly make real world connection. But when you think about relevance with students, the first layer of relevance is them just knowing why they're doing what they're doing in class. And if you pair that with the question, learning intention, the success criteria, then even if it doesn't have an immediate connection to the real world, they still see the relevance because they see what they're doing and how it aligns with what the teacher said they should be learning about or be able to do by the end of class. Thank you. Uh, you kind of answered most of our next question, which is the role of student versus the role of the teacher in the classroom. Um, is there anything you want to add to what you've said when it comes to a learning that transfers classroom? Um, one of the things that we like as a frame is the idea of teacher as designer, which we sort of feel like is, is like transcends and includes the idea of, you know, sage on the stage or guide on the side. Um, because what designers do is they pay attention to all the resources they have. They pay attention to the user. They pay attention to the environment. And they bring all those things together in order to create learning experiences for their students that will maximize their ability to, going back to the top of the show, hopefully maximize their potential. Um, because like for me, especially as a, as a uh, writing teacher, sometimes it's helpful for students to see me model what it looks like to write an effective sentence or paragraph. Um, but there are also plenty of times where if I'm not letting students take ownership of that learning and write themselves, then, you know, what's the point of my instruction? So um, for us, that idea of teachers as designers, just taking advantage of all the different affordances of the different tools and pedagogies and strategies and tools that they have, um, thinking about, you know, what their impact is on their students, what their effect size might be, 
and using them really intentionally to move students towards success. So I guess kind of like busting up that binary of teacher-centered or, or, or student-centered and just thinking about what skill or, or strategy or instructional or cognitive move is going to best help students uh, you know, accomplish that success criteria and maximize their potential within that unit. Yeah, we really, um, in chapter two, we talk about shifts that we think should happen in education. Mm. And so we have the teacher as a designer um, and then students are directors and we want students to be directors of their learning. And we don't want, not to say that students were just going to toss them off and say, okay, go figure this out kids. But it's this cognitive apprenticeship where they're partners in the learning journey. And so as Trevor mentioned, there are times where he needs to model and show expert thinking, but then we turn that over to the students and students are able to say, here's what I know, here's what I don't know. And then take it from there and go, here's where I want to go next. And here's where I think I can demonstrate my learning the best. And so it's this mutual partnership where they're going through this kind of apprenticeship cycle, but shifting to that idea of designer for the teacher and then director for the student helps empower both parties, but make the experience a little bit more meaningful. And I think that idea of that student taking ownership and taking that knowledge and deploying those, that, that conceptual knowledge and those skills in context that they are passionate about, that they care about, that they have prior knowledge of so they can navigate more easily. That I think is really the, the ticket for helping students be really invested and engaged in their learning is, is not only are they taking ownership of the content, but they're using it to solve problems, to create text, to accomplish things that are personally meaningful and relevant for them. And that, that's what really sparks excitement and, and gets students invested in you know, their learning journey as opposed to sort of being marched through it. Yeah, and that, that's the key is getting that student ownership and, and developing that pride and that, and that desire to want to learn. What about assessments? You talked about them a little bit earlier, Kayla, but in just in terms of what does that look like in a learning that transfers class and what do students do with the data versus what do the teachers do with the data that you might gain from any assessments you give? Absolutely. So we, as I mentioned, we see assessment as a, the system of feedback. So it's not a one and done event. It's not, okay, I'm taking a quiz on Friday and then I'm going to the next lesson on Monday. All these learning experiences that we have are ways for students to gather data about themselves to see what they understand or what they don't or what skills they can apply or what they can't. And also that informs the teacher. What, maybe, what examples or context did I provide and it did not highlight those connections that I want students to make? Okay, what can I do tomorrow to better illustrate those connections? And so just like normally with formative data, it's that process, but instead of focusing on the graded aspect, we focus on what information are we gathering and what information are the students gathering? So any context can be seen as an assessment because it gives the student or the teacher or both information about what they understand in their performance. On summative assessments, what we've told teachers is you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can still, if there are some facts that they need to know because you do have a test or end of year exam that they need to take, you can still have your multiple choice questions or your short response questions. But then you also can have a task that's completely new to the students that they've never seen before. And that's where you can assess transfer. And then they're also getting into broader ideas for the student agency, student empowerment. You can have choice tasks where they're applying to a podcast. They're working with an authentic audience. That authenticity and seeing the real world impact is really the ultimate goal. The real world impact is like, as we say, the cherry on top for transfer. Yeah but it doesn't always have to be 
that far dissimilar real world transfer. Um, we know that that sometimes can intimidate folks. And so you can start off with your assessments and then add a dissimilar task to the end of your test. And then as students get comfortable and they've been able to transfer throughout a unit, they've seen some tests, then you can give some of those choice projects where they're transferring and making a wider impact and having a broader audience than just the, the classroom setting. This is, I think this is really nice as we're, we're uh, at least in our district, and I've heard a lot of other districts are, are transferring to this like student or standards-based or stand, standards-reference grading. And- you stole my thunder. Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, I thought about this a little while back because it, it, it already popped in my head and it actually also, you guys are good at uh, lowering my cortisol. I don't usually get too stressed about stuff, but I'm realizing <laughs> some things I was stressed about. Um, our, I would call it our, our mastery level, which is really where we want kids to transfer things. Mm -hmm. They're worded horribly within language arts right now. Um, but when I think about these conceptual transfer pieces, it really lightens my load of like, hey, I, I guess I'm also freeing myself to really reword the, the final, you know, assessment, so to speak, and say, how do we make this transfer outside of this classroom? And, and that really feels good. And I like also the, uh, since we're also obsessed with ungrading, I heard you focus on feedback and taking away that, that grading element as well. And, and focus on what is what feedback can I give you for how we need to transfer this thing more deeply or better. So, mm -hmm. so with that in mind, what's your guys' stance on the letter grade system? <laughs> <laughs> oh, spicy question. Um, I, 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 I'll start, I guess I'll start with this one that I, I really think that it obscures as much as it reveals in terms of like what students' abilities are. And um, I do think it kind of like shrinks this incredibly complex thing of like, you know, what are students capable of producing or thinking or accomplishing? And it puts it into, you know, a, a letter grade that very often students take on as like an identity mm -hmm. to the point where students will be like, oh, I guess I'm just that C kid. Um, and I think that's definitely one of the most toxic parts of it. Uh, I think that we could spend a lot of time hashing out, well, you know, what's the importance of making a student's understanding of a certain concept or context concrete enough that they can kind of get an idea of how good they understand it. Um, but I do think that it's, it's one of the trickier, more uh, anachronistic things that is just kind of like making it really hard to move towards things like you're mentioning, like ungrading. Um, so thinking about, you know, how, else, how can we find a new, maybe a new way to talk about and conceptualize student learning that allows for more flexibility and more emphasis on feedback as opposed to labeling and sorting. I just, I think it's subjective. Um, we all know that it's, even though it's quantitative, it's a zero to a 100. There's no one can explain what separates an 86 from a 92. You know, it's, you can have, we could all sit down with the same student essay or same math task and mm -hmm. the grades will be different. You know, there's so much that shows that. And so, I feel like the letters, as Trevor said, students are aligning that, they're making that their identity. Um, and it takes away, I think, the focus of school and the focus of learning. Like they're not focused on learning. They're focusing on what does I need to do to get the A or to pass? You know, it's a grade grabbing, uh, like a game. It's a grade grabbing system. Um, and I think it just, and 
as educators, sometimes that's the carrot that they dangle in front of students. So it kind of forces this idea of compliance. And so I feel like it brings us into all these negative behaviors, teachers and students that we don't really want and we want to move away from, but we're stuck in this system because we've had this system for forever. And there's so many things that are wrapped around it. Their high school GPAs equate to tuition and college like scholarships and all these pieces. And so it's so complex, but I do feel like it fuels negative behaviors where there's gotta be a better way for us to still know what students understand and for students to know what they understand without being attached to this badge of an A or an F. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it turns kids into uh, grade game theorists where they're like, how can I maximize my letter grade while minimizing the work that I do? And it's, you know, in the being in the classroom, it can be frustrating sometimes, but like, I have to step back and be like, I get it when every single, you know, our grading infrastructure, everything points to the importance of what that GPA or score is at the end of their education, why would they not become great game theorists? Sure. Um, it's, it, and it becomes harder, I think, to sell them on being invested in their learning when all of these sort of external factors are, are really forcing them or putting them into a position where they have to think about that instead. Yeah. And parents too. And parents call me all the time. They're like, my, son, my, my son's got, he's got three F's and a D. What's, what's going on? You know? And I'm like, I, I don't know. He's not doing any work, but they're not asking me, what does my son need to learn to get his grades up? They're asking, what does he need to do to get his grades up? You know, what kind of extra credit can he do? They're not saying my son is minimally uh, understanding communication and soccer, but they're really great at it in uh, that science lab. (laughs) (laughs) How can I improve the soccer communication skill? (laughs) Which would be great. And, and like you said, you still have, as a teacher, you still have, and for the student, parent, whatever, what can we do that's not a grade that still provides some kind of, I'll call it even quantitative understanding of where are you? Because we do want to know as humans, am I improving? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there still has to be something as a rating system of sorts, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. And, or an understanding system, maybe is what we want to call it. Um, yeah, but what is that? Who knows? Yeah. We've got some options out there. <laughs> is it my turn or your turn, Eric? It's your turn. Excellent. Well, of all the strategies in your book, tell us what is your favorite strategy or heck, even just call it a concept, whatever you want to call it. What's your favorite element in the book? Well, I like strategy because I know you have some instructional strategies in there. Yeah, I don't want to limit them, but I guess if you want, we could do that strategy. Kayla was the compiler of what we like eventually called the big book of strategies. That is chapter eight, because (laughs) we think it's really important that if we're going to talk about curriculum and and instruction in a new way, teachers need new tools to enact that in the classroom. So if we're going to say, oh, reframe and reconceptualize the way that you think about your curriculum, but then not give teachers tools that makes that possible in the classroom, like, you know, we're spinning our wheels. Um, so my favorite is, uh, a concept map. And I think it's, uh, it was one of the first things I did when I attended one of Julie's sessions. And it's one of the things I think I do the most in my classroom, um, where students take concepts to that they've acquired, um, in the previous phase, and they have to visually spatially map them out on their desk. And in my last school, I had whiteboard desks. So students would be drawing connections. They, they'd have to write a paragraph explaining the way that these concepts interact. 
And in addition to being a good metacognitive tool, it lowers cognitive loads. They're not having to hold all these complex ideas in their head. They're like projecting it into the world. It becomes tactile where ideas are getting picked up and moved around. And, you know, you could challenge students by, you know, they say they've created this, you know, framework with all the concepts on their desk. You pick one up, you move it outside. And it's like, how does this change the way that they interact? And it's just such a flexible and adaptable tool. And one of the things that I think is a, um, a, a pro of the book and, and Kayla wrote this part. I, I always bring up this, how she brought combined all these different strategies into one. It's one of my favorite, which is the idea of taking um, retrieval practice. So asking students to bring everything that they know about a certain topic and put it down on a page, which is, you know, from cognitive science, but then also thinking about how can you visually spatially map those things out, which is something that happens a lot of design thinking spaces where people are using post-its to capture ideas. So I'd say that that's my favorite because it's pulling from so many different domains and, and industries. And it, it really is a, a low lift way to get kids thinking metacognitively and transferring their learning. Going with that, um, I would say, I'm gonna base it off the teachers that I've worked with in my district and the strategy that they liked the most that they felt like it was immediately implementable. And that was the concept sort and having different pictures for a concept, one concept or different concepts and getting students to organize them in different categories to pick up on those critical attributes and being able to explain similarities and differences between them. It's something that can work K-12. It's worked with inclusion, um, kindergarten classes, even with like letter sounds all the way through algebra two and looking at different types of functions. And so it's just, I feel like it's such a versatile strategy to help students start making sense of the important concepts within the unit before diving into all of the content and how they're connected. Um, and then I'm going to cheat. I'm going to jump to the transfer phase because Trevor had the connect phase with the concept map. Um, borrowed from Misty Patterson, but what concepts live here? It's just, it's such a great question and getting students to tap into prior knowledge or to just tap into like their past experiences and to look at where might their conceptual understanding and those relationships they know apply in this new situation. It's so powerful. And whether it's used as just like a hook to activate students thinking um, or it's the core of an actual context that you want students to transfer their learning to, it just really allows them to, in a safe space, transfer, you know, and so I just, I think it's both of those are simple strategies that paired with the concept map, like you're golden, you can go implement an app lesson tomorrow or the next couple of days. <laughs> and, I mean, they really do scale K to 12, like thinking about the example that Kayla has with showing different images um, and, and that concept attainment piece like that, you could introduce phonics with that. And then you go all the way up to being like here are images that capture the feeling of the romantic era of literature in Britain. And it's like just wild to think literally K-12, the exact same strategy. What changes is the concepts that you're talking about as they become more like exact same strategy, exact same skill. But the, the context and the concepts as they become richer and more complex, you can challenge students more. Mm -hmm. Teachers are always looking for strategies. So just to be clear, you have an entire chapter, chapter eight, chapter eight, instructional strategies to help students transfer their learning from concept to concept. Mm -hmm. outstanding so let's sum it up we've been here for a while we got to go i know you guys are busy and we're super appreciative for you spending some time but we've talked about a lot of stuff today uh we haven't really even cracked into your book i mean we've talked about the basics of it and and whatnot but if you could just kind of sum up 
maybe thinking back of all the stuff we've talked about today, what's the most important thing you feel we've talked about that you really want our listeners to walk away from this episode remembering? I'll start with Trevor. <laughs> um, so we, we did talk about a decent amount, but that the, the disciplinary literacy is the one that I'm grappling a lot with now because I'm really wanting to think about how can we put our students into a position where they're not just consuming knowledge and content, but, they're, but they become knowledge producers, where they're asking and thinking how would a historian or a scientist or a journalist approach this situation? And how can we give them an opportunity to, obviously they're not going to become experts. They, they don't have all the you know, facts and knowledge that a historian would, but how can we give them a taste of what it's like? How can we put them into learning experiences that are authentic enough where they can say, I thought like a, you know, an economist, or I wrote the way that a blogger would write and give them the tools, both cognitive and technological to produce things that feel real and authentic and not sort of like contrived. Um, not what uh, our, our friend Dan Ryder calls dumpster projects, which are, you know, they make the mobile that then goes into the trash as soon as the unit's over, but really be creating and producing work that's authentic and meaningful and talking and thinking about it in ways that are reflective of the, the way that people uh, discuss their work in the discipline in the real world. And I'm, I'm going to go from a coaching like advice or perspective. Um, don't worry about being perfect. Just try, start where you are. So whether you do get to design the curriculum or you're given a curriculum, taking the ACT model, think about next week, what concepts are most important? How can you help students understand those early in the week? Pose a conceptual question that relates, how is X related to Y in the middle of the week with a good lesson that helps students see that connection? And then Thursday or Friday, have students apply that by doing another activity. You know, it really can be as simple as just going through that process in one week and getting your feet wet. So I would say it all starts with intentionality and thinking about what's most important, putting that into a question for, to help students see those connections and then think about how they can apply their understanding in different ways. But- And the book is chock full of next day strategies too. That was a design feature that um, got implemented that I feel like is, is awesome, which is the idea of even if we're kind of in, in the weeds talking about some of like the theory or some like the more zoomed out curricular aspects, right? Embedded will be like a next day strategy. So here's how you take that. Here's how you make it live and breathe in your classroom the very next day, which, which I think is something we had mentioned, but is, but is really powerful too. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how can I get the book and how can I connect with you guys? So you can get the book on um, at Corwin's website. It's also on Amazon, uh, Learning That Transfers Design Curriculum for a Changing World. And then we're both on Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Kayla Duncan. And uh, I'm, oh, <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at Mr. Elio Says. Um, and we also have a website with supporting uh, materials. So as you move throughout the book, there are QR codes and there are templates. So we custom built a website for people to go on. Um, and be able to fill out and use the, the tools uh, that we display in the book, bring them into their classroom right away through that website. That is so much better than the old school CD that came in the back of the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's really simple to remember, learningthetransfers.com. And awesome. yes, and then all of our other work is edtosavetheworld.com. So we have a bunch of places to connect. We hope we can connect and yeah. And that link to that website is in both your Twitter uh, profiles. 
Yes. Yep. And we'll, we'll put it in the show notes too. So thank you both so much for coming on. It has been our pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. You guys are doing great work. And just the idea that you came and spent an hour with us is just mind blowing. And we can't thank you enough. Well, thanks thank so you, much thank for you, having us. You. We appreciate the conversation. Yeah, it was great. There you have it. That was a great conversation with Mr. Aleo says and Mrs. Kayla Duncan. Those are their Twitter handles. Please check them out. Once again, that book is through Corwin Press. Uh, you can just look for Learning That Transfers on Amazon if you want or wherever you get your books. I'm sure they have it and ready for you. And I'm please let us know if you've already read the book or maybe you're midway through it or you're about to get it. What appeals to you about it? What do you like about it if you've already read it? Just Hit me up, uh, let me know your thoughts, uh, post them on Twitter. You can directly message me. You can also just connect with any of my threads that I post just to join the conversation about this episode because this was a fantastic conversation and I hope you learned a lot from it. And we'll see you next week where I will be giving you some thoughts on blockchain because uh, it has some major implications for education. And I want to start exploring that piece by piece. We'll continue to have guests, but I also want to put in a little piece here and there about blockchain as well. So we'll see you next week on that one. And until then, goodbye.